In the last few years, there is a consensus that there has been a paradigm shift in the management of heart failure. Although nothing is definite, there have been valiant strides and an emphasis on evidence-based practice in the management of heart failure. You may have recognized the names of prominent research trials in that opening sentence that are often reverberating across the cardiology wards. It is estimated that there are around 600,000 individuals in Canada living with heart failure. This makes it one of the most prevalent chronic diseases in Canada, requiring internists and cardiologists to be proficient in its diagnosis and management. Luckily, we have a multitude of trials to guide an evidence-based approach to caring for our patients with heart failure. Today, our patient has heart failure, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Room, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Taking Action on the Ejection Fraction, Chronic Management of Heart Failure. Time for our minute physiology. Heart failure is a complex clinical syndrome in which cardiac dysfunction results in changes in vascular function, blood volume, and neurohumeral status. These changes are intended to act as compensatory mechanisms to help improve cardiac output. However, over time, abnormal heart function results in symptoms and signs of reduced cardiac output and pulmonary or systemic congestion. Impaired contractility or relaxation can cause remodeling of the heart, leading it to decrease its function and cause heart failure. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. We will briefly go over the pertinent history and physical exam findings. However, the bulk of this podcast will focus on the long-term management of heart failure. There has been a previous podcast discussing the acute management of heart failure in more detail that you can find at www.theinternetwork.com. The clinical symptoms patients often present with include dyspnea, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, edema, fatigue, early satiety, abdominal pain from hepatic congestion, abdominal swelling, and ascites. It is important to note that patients can present in any combination of these symptoms as well as other symptoms, for example, older adults who may present with lightheadedness or falls. Relevant physical exam findings include increased work of breathing, crackles or wheeze on respiratory auscultation, elevated JVP, extra heart sounds such as an S3, lower limb and generalized edema, enlarged liver, and increased abdominal girth due to ascites. We commonly use the New York Heart Association Functional Classification of Heart Failure to categorize where patients lie on a symptom spectrum, and we use this to guide therapeutic interventions. Symptoms can be categorized based on activity done which would cause symptoms. For example, walking a city block or climbing a flight of stairs. Patients are considered in class 1 when they are symptom-free and without physical limitation. Class 4 lies at the other end of the spectrum, indicating severe limitations and symptoms even at rest. The ACC AHA staging system is a useful tool for classifying where a patient is in terms of their progression and evolution of the disease. Stage A is the earliest form of heart failure, and stage D is the most advanced form of heart failure. This, in conjunction with the clinical exam, aids in the prognosis and management options available for patients. Let's talk about the workup. The workup of a patient with heart failure includes a detailed and specific symptom history and physical exam. Blood work includes a CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, liver enzymes and function tests, BNP, and relevant tests investigating for etiology of heart failure. 
an echocardiogram is the most important initial imaging modality. There are multiple nuances and specifics in the clinical context that would guide further workup for patients with heart failure. One should always consider workup to rule out underlying ischemic heart disease if not done previously, as it is the most common etiology for heart failure. Heart failure can be classified by the degree of left ventricular systolic dysfunction, which is quantified by the ejection fraction, or EF for short, which is a measurement expressed as a percentage of how much blood the left ventricle pumps out with each contraction. This is commonly determined by echocardiography. We classify heart failure patients with an EF of 50% or greater as having heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEF-PEF. Those with an EF of 40% or less have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, HEF-REF. If the EF is between 40 and 50%, then we call that heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction. The etiology of heart failure can broadly be categorized into ischemic versus non-ischemic causes, and determining the cause of heart failure is important in the diagnostic workup. Now time to talk about treatment. There are certain aspects to the long-term management of heart failure that are universal throughout. These are primary lifestyle interventions, including dietary modifications of salt and fluid restrictions, cardiac rehab and physical exercise, and avoiding alcohol and other cardiotoxic substances. The symptomatic management of CHF revolves around maintaining euvolemia and optimizing cardiac function with various pharmacologic agents. Diuretics are titrated to lowest effective dose and include loop diuretics like furosemide and bumetanide, with the addition of metolazone when needed. Pharmacologic management of heart failure aims to use agents which improve morbidity and mortality. The bulk of our therapies have proven mortality benefit in patients with HEF-REF, so we'll begin our discussion in this patient population. Up until recently, there were generally three pharmacologic classes, colloquially referred to as triple therapy, which form the basis of initial heart failure pharmacotherapy. However, recently a fourth agent has been added to these classes and has been shown to have significant improvement in mortality, morbidity, or quality of life. Use of RAS blockade with an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, or ARB, reduces mortality, morbidity, and improves quality of life. It is important to note that ACE inhibitors and ARBs can have an impact on potassium and renal function. Up to a 30% rise in creatinine is acceptable. In the past, this was the first-line recommended therapy. The most recent Canadian Cardiovascular Society guideline, however, has now been updated to recommend initiating an ARNI, angiotensin receptor blocker and neprilysin inhibitor, as first-line therapy, or switching from an ACE or ARB. Neprilysin is an enzyme which metabolizes natriuretic and vasoactive peptides, which enhance vasorelaxation, positive effects, Thus, neprilysin inhibitors decrease the degradation of neprilysin and promote naturesis and vasodilation. The second tenant of heart failure therapy is beta-adrenergic receptor blockade, or beta blockers. Common beta blockers which are used include carvedilol, metoprolol, and bisoprolol. They can be up-titrated as the heart rate tolerates. The third agent is a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, or MRA. This works by blocking the downstream effects of mineralocorticoids, and works as a diuretic. MRAs can impact kidney function and can cause hyperkalemia, thus these should be monitored. SGLT2 inhibitors have previously shown benefit in mortality, reduced heart failure hospitalization, and quality of life, and were recommended in patients with diabetes. In the most recent CCS guidelines, SGLT2 inhibitors are recommended in patients with HEF-REF even if they do not have diabetes, 
due to the strong evidence supporting their use. This is now the fourth agent that is used in the management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. It is important to recognize the importance of increasing these therapies to evidence-based doses that were shown in clinical trials to have benefit, recognizing that not all patients will tolerate optimal dosing. Evabradine can also be added in patients with sinus rhythm and a resting heart rate greater than 70 while on optimal beta blockade. Evabradine works by blocking channels in the SA node and has the effect of lowering heart rate in a different mechanism from beta blockers, while having less of an effect on blood pressure. These two agents reduce cardiovascular mortality and hospitalizations. Generally, at this level of management, there would be a referral to a cardiologist, but this can be done at any point during CHF management. Upon subsequent visits, clinical symptoms are reassessed and a repeat echocardiogram is performed. If the patient has an EF over 35% and is asymptomatic, they will generally continue the same therapy. If they are experiencing any symptoms or have an EF less than 35%, they should be referred to electrophysiology for consideration of an implantable cardiac defibrillator and or cardiac resynchronization therapy, ICD slash CRT device. If they are having severe symptoms at rest and YHA class four, the patient should be considered for advanced heart failure management, which may include further medication optimization, mechanical support with a left ventricular assist or LVAD device, transplant, or comfort measures depending on the clinical context. Regarding the HEF-PATH patient population, despite several trials, evidence does not support the same morbidity and mortality benefits with the previously described therapies. There has been some evidence that RAS blockade shows some reduction in hospitalization, but this benefit does not persist. Beta blockade did not show significant benefit in patients with preserved EF. Finally, there is some evidence from secondary analyses that MRAs may reduce heart failure hospitalizations in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. In general heart failure management, it is important to note that digoxin can often be seen used, but in the specific context of reducing hospitalizations in patients with atrial fibrillation and heart failure. It has not been shown to show a mortality benefit in studies. Calcium channel blockers have evidence against their use in heart failure patients as there is no mortality or functional benefit in this population. Specifically, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers should be avoided in heart failure patients as they may precipitate cardiovascular collapse. Let's finish with our medicine minute. The clinical trial entitled Emperor Reduced empagliflozin in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with or without type 2 diabetes, published in October 2020, provides evidence for the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure with reduced EF, including non-diabetic patients with heart failure. The CCS guidelines in 2020 support the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in all HFREF patients. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Long-Term Management of Congestive Heart Failure. This episode was written by Dr. Raymond Jenner, Internal Medicine Resident, and Dr. Laura Goodlett, Cardiology Fellow, and reviewed by Dr. Faison Amin, Cardiology, and Dr. Khaled Azam, General Internal Medicine. The Internet Work Series was created by Allison Lang and developed by Zara Morales and Leia Kirinopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Leia Kirinopoulos. Music by Lakshma Sampanova. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe for every video podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.